Hi, I'm Mel Kanarek and this is a special edition of the Sheffield Digital Podcast. A couple of months ago, we had a great conversation with two digital businesses in Sheffield, Mina and Airship. Both are really exciting companies at different stages of their journeys from start-up to scale-up. But while we were talking to them, I was really interested to hear Andrew from Airship mention that the company had gone through a major change from being a lifestyle business to being a business that had raised investment and had a clear plan for growth. In Sheffield, we hear a lot about how there are too many so-called lifestyle businesses and not enough scale-ups. Now, I don't think there's anything wrong with being a lifestyle business. They create jobs, generate income, support people's ambitions and contribute to the local economy. In fact, I've run a couple of those kinds of businesses myself. But what lifestyle businesses aren't very good at is creating lasting value and as a result they can be difficult to sustain. So I wanted to follow up with Airship to find out more about their story and how they've made that transition. I arranged a chat with Andrew Whiteley, who's a director at Airship, and Dan Brookman, who's the CEO and one of the founders. We covered the highs and the lows with a bit of serendipity thrown in. I really enjoyed talking to them both, and I hope you enjoy listening. Okay, so Dan and Andrew, welcome and thank you very much for spending time with me today. I'm really interested in the Airship story. And to begin with, I'd like to go right the way back to the very start. And first of all, find out a little bit about each of you. So what your backgrounds are and what were you doing before you became Airship or became part of Airship? So, Dan, can I start with you, please? Yeah, sure. So um, um, how far back do you want to go? Um, (laughs) So um, I... um, I designed a board game for the launch of the Super Tram in Sheffield when I was 16, um, which networked me with a lot of the political parties and the council and um, got me into basically into business. Mm. Um, and then between 16 and 20, I worked in uh, worked for Next in, on Fargate and I worked in the Beehive on Dykesall Road in Hillsborough and the West End on Glossop Road and the uh, Broomhill Tavern. Um, uh, and just, you know, worked solidly uh, after I left school and uh, enabled me to buy a property in Walkley uh, uh, when I was about 17 years old. And um, I was renting out rooms in that property. And then when I turned about 22, uh, I was looking for uh, something to get involved in. And I knew at that point that I was never going to really work for a company and that I wanted to do something for myself. And um, a, a couple of friends said I was having a game of tennis up at uh, Loxley College and a couple of mates said the Hillsborough Baths on Langsett Road was up for sale, a Victorian swimming pool, and that somebody should buy it and turn it into a pub. Um, so I did. Um, so um, I, I had a, a bit of a credit rating and it allowed me to get a credit card and it was £120,000 and I put a 5% deposit down on a credit card and bought it uh, freehold uh, from a pension fund in Birmingham. Um, and uh, then through, uh, it took me about 18 months to do the change of use and uh, get planning permission on it and then get a license on it. And at 23, I opened the Deep End uh, which was a 600 capacity live music venue. And the reason I told you about the house story is that um, at the end of this sort of, I think I had, had the building on deposit for 12 months 
Uh, and then at the end of the 12 months, I was just due to lose my deposit if I couldn't find half a million pounds to do the refurbishment with and buy the freehold. And it so happened that a lad moved into my house and rented a room and his parents were quite wealthy and owned a load of pubs in Northern Ireland. And he saw the shrine that I'd set up to it and I had a scale model and all of these designs and fabric samples and, you know, floor plans and furniture um, that I'd researched. And uh, he saw it and was interested immediately. And a week later, his family was over, his father and his brothers, and I walked them around it and they just said, you know, get on with it. Basically, we'll give you half a million quid. Um, so, um, so I had the deep end for a number of years and I had a record company called Seraphic, uh, which was on uh, in town uh, near Red Tape. Mm -hmm. And then I had um, the bar on Campo Lane, uh, which was called The Art Room, which is now called Couch. Um, I had a bar in Chesterfield and I had some other businesses. And then when I was about 30 years old, I think, um, Rob Marser, who's our CTO and my co-founder, approached me about using text messaging. Uh, to speak to my customers and we hadn't used it and I had I was running a something called the Deepender card which was like a membership card for the Deepend which I sold and I had the data on spreadsheets or on Microsoft Access I think at the time and Rob approached me and said have you tried using text messages and I, I thought it was a great idea and at the time I was throwing money at all sorts of different things um, so I threw some money in and we set up a company called PowerText and that was in 2003 we launched and we recruited somebody from Sheffield Hallam University um, as our coder, um, a guy called Mark Little. He built it. Yeah. Amazing. Well, I, I didn't know any of that. So you just brought together all these threads <laughs> in Sheffield that I had no idea of. That's absolutely fascinating. So, um, Andrew, how about you? Tell me <laughs> your story. Beat that one. <laughs> Why couldn't I have gone first? <laughs> um, so... Uh, Slightly, I kind of kind of a similar mindset, slightly less grandiose tales, I think, for me. So, um, my original interest when I was a, um, a young teenager was in graphic design, um, and during my my teens, I kind of tried and failed at lots of mini businesses. You know, setting up a little website business with my brother, setting up a t-shirt business um, with my friend. Um, we we did like a, a skateboarding tuition business and, and, and all sorts of nonsense things like this. Um, but the fact that I was um, interested in graphic design was really useful because it allowed me to take these ideas that I had and actually make them a reality. Because often it's that kind of that interface between your ideas and actually putting it out in the real world that is the is the barrier. So I had the skills to be able to do that. So I went off to university and began uh, studying visual communication at Loughborough. And throughout that. Uh, my degree, I began to specialise and become much more interested in user interface design, user experience design. And that's what I then did after university, set up a little kind of mini mini agency, I guess, with, with uh, myself and a couple of mates. I, I think a bit similar to Dan, I, I never really saw myself kind of just getting stuck into a big company and, and, and working in that way. Um, so I did that for a year or two um, alongside uh, sports as well as I did sports. So I was a guide for the GB para triathlon squad. Um, and I did that for a couple of years. And then uh, at the time, I had the luxury of choosing where I wanted to live in the UK. So, you know, not, not often you get that kind of choice in life, which is nice. And I really like cities, but I really like the country. So I was gravitated towards Sheffield and came and stayed in my camper van up at Redmires for, for a week whilst I checked out and viewed a few houses. Um, and then on one of the evenings when I went for a little walk over the moors, I saw this guy with two dogs. Uh, two Hungarian Vizslers, I really like Vizslers, and got chatting to him. 
um, that guy was Dan, this man that you're, you're seeing here. And so uh, we got chatting, uh, asked him about Sheffield, and it all, all was very pleasant. We actually then went our separate ways on the moors, and then um, when we got about, I don't know, 50 metres away from each other, Dan span around and shouted back up the moors. He said, what do you do, by the way? What do you do? So we, we reconvened, and I talked to him about my graphic design and then merging into the UI design and all of that. And he said, great, well, we've got a, a vacancy for a... Um, a creative director in a, in our business. <laughs> I like to think that the sun was setting. There were like birds, birds in the background. I don't know. I don't know. Every time I tell it the story, it was. Was, <laughs> more and more romantic. It was a shooting um, star, I think, early evening <laughs> shooting star. I, I think I'm going, if I do make a podcast of this, it's going to be called the Serendipity Podcast. Yeah, yeah. And that's just an, an amazing story. So can I ask with both of you, is there entrepreneurship in your families? Did your parents run their own businesses um, or, or any influences? So I can go first. And um, no, not originally. So my dad um, started a consultancy, but much later on in his career, um, he used to work for BP, uh, oil man. Um, and then he started a consultancy. Um, so no, not really, actually. I think I'm, uh, yeah, one of the, the, the first uh, the first ones to kind of head that way in my family. Yeah. How about you, Dan? Um, yeah, so I, I, my, my, I come from a family of entrepreneurs. My parents are designers. Uh, my brother's a designer. Um, and growing up uh, in Uterbridge, uh, my parents started their company in the 70s, uh, uh, building furniture, designing kitchens. You know, we saw the house go up for sale a few times. Uh, with the interest rates of the 80s and bad payers and bad debt. Um, and slowly over the years, they built quite a successful uh, furniture manufacturing business with shops around the world. Um, and they lost it all in the end, unfortunately. They scaled out to the high street um, and fell foul of um, some of the big players and lost the business uh, just as they were retiring. Mm. Um, and uh, it was a real shame. But I think that, you know, my dad... Uh, my dad particularly was, um, you know, as a designer, when you're designing products, you, you know, you think something up and you build it, you know, and you design it and you create it and you market it and you go, go for it, really. So I was, uh, I was surrounded by that as a child. Yeah. And desensitized de to risk as well, you know, quite in a quite a big way. That's a huge part of it, isn't it? It's just being prepared to take that on and knowing that you can come back from it somehow. Yeah, yeah. 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 Okay. So when did Airship actually become Airship? Yeah. So 2012, I think we rebranded from Powertext to Airship. We recognized that Powertext was reflective of the previous business. Uh, we'd gone through lots of iterations of it. We started out as a SaaS business, bulk text message provider in 2003. That lasted about two or three years. Um, we did really well in the late night sector, working for Gatecrasher and Ministry of Sound and all the big promoters and DJs. We built out tech for them and for the university, um, but we didn't make any money at it. And we brought in some non-execs to help and they told us to specialise and ditch our customers and concentrate on the 20% that brought in 80% of the revenue. Um, and we did that and uh, we kept them too long, unfortunately. And uh, after the recession of 2009, uh, we parted company with them. Um, we set out more on an agency trail at that point, and Rob and I basically took over the business again. Mm -hmm. um, and we, um, yeah, so in 2012, 13, we switched to Airship, rebranded, um, again, went sort of full service agency, uh, started building out websites for people. And we had a tech stack, uh, but uh, we sold ours. Uh, we mm -hmm. sold a little bit of license revenue, but mainly it was ours. Okay. And 
Andrew, at what point did you join? So I think I, I joined in, in the height of this um, attempt to create a full service agency. So my job title now is not creative director, which is what I was originally um, employed as. Um, the, the idea was to, as Dan mentioned, we have this tech stack, which kind of sits in the middle of the business, the nucleus that, that drives things. Um, and we wanted to sell services around that. So um, there was content services, there was web services, um, there was uh, creative services as well. And so I was kind of brought in to head up the creative services arm of it. And, and that's what we were trying to do at that time. So I joined uh, six years ago. So that would have been 20, late 2015, I think it was. Um, and that was, uh, I was giving a real ball kick at trying to, you know, properly have people responsible for their own departments and, and selling these extra services into the clients that were using our tech. Uh, it, was, it, was, it was quite a neat idea, truthfully. We, we found people who were at the top of their game uh, and then we gave them infrastructure, customer base. Uh, we did the accounts, we did the commercial uh, and we let them sort of go off. And it worked really well for the first one, which was web. And we started build, building websites. And then we plugged in social, uh, which worked less well. And then we plugged in creative, which worked, you know, and all we were actually doing was diluting our message to our customers. And in the end, our customers went, we don't know who you are anymore. And we just took a massive plummet of sales. And, and also, we couldn't handle the politics internally of the different companies uh, and how we worked together. It that We had no... Uh, uh, we didn't have real leadership at that point. I think it was too many people making too many wrong decisions. That's really interesting. So were you ever working to a plan or were you just going where the next evolution seemed to be? No, we, I think we had quite a firm plan of what we were trying to aim for. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's very hard when you're doing that and you've no money. You know, all of this was without funding. There was no money in the bank. You know, every time we won a contract, we'd hire a member of staff. Uh, to fulfil it, it's a real, it's a real hard slog running a business like that. It's, it's a real hamster wheel, isn't it? The it is. uh, the agency model, and I think it yeah. takes a lot of clever manoeuvring to move it past that stage and into something where you can, can grow. Yeah. Um, and taking on investment is often one of the ways that people do that. Another way is developing their own products so that you've got recurring revenue from products as well as from a service offering. And it sounds to me like you've actually done both of those things. Did you do them at the same time or, or did one come um, first? Well, we always had like PowerText and then Airship as the tech stack as this nucleus. So when, when we got to 2017, I think, where it really started crumbling, we'd given it a go for a couple of years. The guy that ran the social business decided to move on and go back to un- university life and, you know, working within a university. Um, and, it, it, you know, it was crumbling a little bit and we'd pulled lots of people into the business. And the hospitality sector is notoriously hard to work in, and especially on an hourly rate. You know, they don't cash businesses uh, tend to be quite hard to work for, uh, more so than other sectors mm-hmm. where they have larger budgets for marketing. Uh, and they don't, you know, and and more expertise in marketing departments as well. And, you know, if you turn this into a podcast, people won't go, oh, What's he just said? Because everybody recognises that, you know, in hospitality, generally people come up from the bottom, they work the bars, they work the floors, you know, they showed um, that they were good at HR, they showed they were good at marketing, they're pulled into those positions, they're trained up and they, they don't leave hospitality, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so so I think um, we had the tech stack and we were all, all of the services were based around that. Yeah. 
Yeah. So we 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 tried the agency, and in 2017, it all started to crumble. We didn't act very quickly, and then in 2018, um, our largest customer at the time, which had been our biggest win of 2017, went bust. Um, and it was one of those 1.4 billion pound businesses, a, an absolute darling of the high street. You know, nothing could go wrong. Uh, all of a sudden, they've got a zero on a spreadsheet in the wrong place or missing a zero and they unravel and it's quick and it's dirty. And it's a bit of a, wow, how, how did an auditor get away with that for five years, you know? Yeah. So were you ever tempted, you know, when you hit these reversals just to chuck it all in and go back to running pubs? Yeah, I, I, absolutely. I think um, I think you're always tempted. I think that you're so invested, though. You've put so many years into it, and you know, I yeah, I I, I think um, the pub game uh, has changed so much uh, in the intervening years for me. You know, I probably would have gone out and worked for a pub company as their marketing director if I'd have chucked in the towel. But we weren't ready to chuck in the towel. The team. You know, the team weren't ready to chuck in the towel. I mean, we were, yep. when I, I took over in 2018 as the CEO, and, and it was a really stressful time, wasn't it, Andrew? I mean, it was. We, we shed a lot of tears. We let, we let, we let a lot of people go. Yep. You know, a lot of people we'd work for. My first act as CEO was to make 65% of the company, 70% of the company redundant. You know, we lost so much revenue. We went from 1.4 million to... Uh, about 400,000 in about yeah. six weeks you know it was it was pretty horrific and we had no cash buffer like yeah and and for me it was it was really hard this these couple of years because this this really was my first job my first proper job <laughs> and so so straight in and yeah we, we try we try the agency model and then to hit that kind of um obstacle within about a year and a half of your your working career um and trying to negotiate that it was it was really difficult but we have negotiated it and i think uh, an instrumental part of that obviously when dan became ceo getting rid of all those people was was incredibly difficult but uh, that was coupled with the entire refocus of the business around technology and that's when you know we, we are 18 19 20 years old as a company but it really feels like we're three maybe because it, it was at that point where we said right let's not do the agency anymore focus on our technology it's when we built toggle so we launched toggle in uh, october 2018 and actually uh, completely didn't sell hours anymore and just that whole process it took maybe i don't know a year and a half two years uh, yeah. to, to complete but the as a business we're so much more focused the the, the hires that we've got are all focused around products where we, uh, we develop and um, and sell like a, a SaaS business now and um, yeah it was just a really difficult process to manage but but i think it feels like we are there <laughs> yeah yeah i think so yeah. I, th I would call ourselves a, a yeah a SaaS technology business yeah yeah so it's a case of yeah, it didn't kill you. It made you stronger. Um, it almost forced a pivot on you or made you really look at your business and look at where you could pivot to yeah. and what's, what assets, what strengths you had in the business that were the right things to build on. Yeah. Um, plus that understanding that the agency model alone wasn't going to give you the sustainability that you were looking for. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I think it was it was it wasn't going to give us the exit we were looking for actually because mm -hmm. we've always run the business as a lifestyle business, and that, that had always been at odds with what I wanted to do anyway. But you know, my, me and uh, Rob, um, you, it, we, I went along with it. 
you know, I just went along with it. Uh, but now, it, you know, it was about actually how do we exit this? How do we realize some value from it? De-risk, yeah. you know, and what's that strategy look like? What does that plan look like? And we went, we wrote a business plan and we went out and we said, this is our new business plan. And I stuck a post-it note to the office wall that says we will never sell another hour, mm-hmm. you know, and that's, there's, there's our strategy, you know, and we just ditched loads and loads of business. And I think that the other and, it, you know, you could call it a rut um, that we were stuck in really was the platforms integrated in hospitality. All of our data partners are hospitality. We couldn't switch sector and mm. um, we couldn't ju- jump into a different sector and give something else a go. We're still in hospitality. It's still our expertise. And we're still proud to be in hospitality, you know. Um, so it was just a case of saying we'll not sell an hour, but we'll sell a license and we'll build a product we know that people need. And we know is quite an early product. Uh, in toggle and then we'll bring airship up as a SaaS platform as well um, and we'll focus our time on solving the support issues uh, by building tools so our customers can operate it themselves so what's changed in your heads from operating as a lifestyle business to operating as a a, a business with an exit plan yes i, I think that we we've we're just all on the bus uh, John Vincent from Leon um, uh, fame, uh, you know, whenever I was sat in his boardroom, he'd walk in in a pair of nylon soccer pants and shout, who's on the bus? Who's on the bus? And everybody had to shout, we're on the bus, John. It was terrible, honestly. <laughs> anyway, um, so, um, uh, yeah, so we, um, we're we all on the same bus. We're all going in the same direction. The whole company is bought into it. When we interview new people now, we tell them we're for sale. You know, we tell them that part of my role is to sell the company. And we put 15% of the company aside for the team through an EMI scheme. Um, so everybody's on the bus. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that, you know, I think we're all quite excited as to what might come next anyway. You know, who might buy us and then what might come after that as well, you know, because we're quite a solid team of people. Yeah, and I think that transparency uh, and openness is is really, really important. As Dan said, it, there's there's absolutely no, you know, it's no secret about it. And and I think if you were to be cagey about it, it would create animosity and actually kind of maybe fear and trepidation about what this sale entails. But, you know, selling it is not the end of the line. It's nothing negative. It's, it's, it's amazing. It will allow our products to, to take on another level that we perhaps couldn't get them to ourselves. Um, and once you get the whole team bought into that, it, it, things just kind of click into place. And that's something we never really achieved with the, with the agency model. It, make, how- it makes life so much easier. Sorry, Mel. It makes life so much easier. You know, you mega focused on it Mm. decision making yeah absolutely and how big is your senior management team is just the two of you and rob um oh yeah so um six so there's a chief commercial officer there's jocelyn our cfo um uh, we have an observer from the investment company we have a chairman a non-exec chairman who's uh, a couple of days a month and then we have um, you know, but e- equally as important as our, you know, customer success manager, our national sales manager, um, our partnerships manager, you know, um, yeah, but it was about six in the senior team. Yeah. And, and how did you go about finding the right non-execs to work with? Mm. Um, so um, we, uh, when we were invested with Mercia Asset Management PLC uh, via Northern Powerhouse Investment Fund, um, they gave me um, three people. I gave them three people. They interviewed mine. I interviewed theirs. Uh, I chose theirs. 
Um, um, so just through a, a normal process, we chose a, a chairman who'd exited a business similar, uh, which was dealing with transactions. He exited to WorldPay. Um, so he sits on our board now a couple of days uh, a month and I think that non-execs are really really important I think that they have a life lifespan now I think that you should never keep them in a business more than a year probably uh, and then cycle them out and cycle another one in uh, for different layers of expertise I think otherwise they can steer the business yeah. uh, potentially and that's my p- p- personal experience um, but yeah yeah they, they're great they're great very supportive Wonderful. Well, Dan, I'm looking at the time and I know that you need to go. Um, I'm going to ask Andrew if we can chat a bit more, if that's okay with you. Fantastic. But thank you so much. Uh, Lovely to dig around and find out a bit more about you. And I've really enjoyed talking to you. Excellent. Wow. Well, that that is such an amazing story. And I had no idea. I told you it was good, didn't I? Yeah. I've I've moved to Sheffield um, over 30 years ago now. So I've seen you know, all the changes that have gone in the city. And uh, you know, okay. I remember when the baths were actually swimming baths. And when oh, so you remember happened. Art House and, and uh, Deep End and yeah, those yeah. Kind of places. Yeah, of course, because I've only been here the, uh, six years, I think. So, yeah, yeah, yeah I, don't, I, don't, I wasn't around back then, but wow, that's really interesting. Yeah. <laughs> so um, I'm interested to talk to you a little bit more mm. about what it's like being part of such a an agile business yeah um and you know sort of the the good and the bad if you will and if if this does if i do publish this you'll get a chance to listen to it first to make sure Sure. you're happy with stuff going out but what what's that been like being part of such an agile business um so i think um well going back going back to the uh what i said earlier about it being very difficult and a bit of a a shock which which is true you know as i said this was my my first job and really uh yeah i don't think throwing in the deep end is a bit of a understatement <laughs> um but at the same time uh, that's kind of how i've operated and, and and worked in my in my life generally i kind of tend to just put myself in situations that i have no choice other than to muddle through and so uh, that was my experience in the first couple of years was just uh, just focusing on the task at hand and not really trying to um, think about too much about any the, the gravitas of the situation. I'm quite good at kind of <laughs> blocking out the, <laughs> the noise around. Um, but the uh, to answer your question, um, yeah, what, what is it like working in agile business? Um, I think I think now the, the word agile has has different meanings when I'm thinking about it back then and back now. So back then, um, our agility was in uh, a massive shift in in what we do and and how we do it and and credit to dan that agility came from the top down from dan when he became ceo i think before that we were we were um yeah a little bit more cumbersome and a bit slower to to make decisions um and again uh, to kind of reference dan what he's saying uh earlier about his his upbringing but he was kind of desensitized to risk um and he's really brought that along in in the whole company, which has been a, a learning process for me as well. You know, I I, I didn't have that kind of um, that kind of upbringing, and, and whilst I am that way inclined, there's there's definitely my threshold is a little bit sooner than Dan's. <laughs> um, so so that's been a learning process, and um, but that that whole ethos has carried itself beautifully into how we operate now as a business because our decision making is so much more focused now now we know now we know we're we're in it, in it for the exit and we've had the we've had the investment we know exactly where we want to be 
um, and when we want to be there. And so when you make decisions and, and uh, decisions about processes and, uh, you know, even down to the tiniest little things, it's like, does, does this help us achieve our goal um, by X, Y, Z? Obviously, there's always room for, you know, a bit of fluff around the edges, but um, does this help us achieve our goal? Yes, no. Okay, this is the right decision to go ahead. And, and I think uh, looking at that and coupling it with understanding how, uh, the world around us is is rapidly changing and not kind of being stuck stuck in our ways and actually having the confidence to answer that question with um, a yes or a no that you may not have answered that question with a yes or a no two months down the line is again a, another kind of learning process naturally not to not to define yourself with how you were a year ago and that mm-hmm. and the, the way that we have shifted in the last few years has I think been testament to that um, where we're just always looking ahead looking ahead what's next what's next what's next yeah, it's it's hard work. <laughs> it's it's quite physically and emotionally draining, but um, but it's definitely the it's definitely the right way to right right way to do it, and it's paid dividends. You know, this um, our pre- the previous podcast we were in was talking about uh, the pandemic and track to the the, the um, little check in app we launched and how we um, operated Toggle throughout the pandemic, how we operated Airship throughout the pandemic, um, and again that agility. Um, I think helped us win over over that over that year. You know, we we grew by about threefold in our revenue in a year where our clients would close down, uh, and that was because our our mindset is always looking what's next, what's next, not defining ourselves of what we've done or overthinking things. It's just um, taking the the next best steps that we seem possible, testing it, seeing if it works. If it doesn't work, that's fine. We failed, but it doesn't matter. On to the next thing. Yeah, and I mean, I know this is kind of your, if if you will, it's your first job. And, and you've, you know, grown massively as, as the company has grown. Mm. You've learned as the company has gone through its different changes and, you know, you're still learning and, and picking the, the ne- next route. But what sort of, I want to say advice, but that's probably not quite the right word. What bits of experience would you share with other business people who are stuck in that rut of being a lifestyle business? So they're on the hamster wheel Money's coming in, money's going out, but there's mm-hmm. no growth, there's no forward momentum. What would you share with them to help them break out of that rut and make the change into being a growing business? <laughs> what a question. Wow. <laughs> if I get the right answer, I, I might start my own consultancy and go around and just whisper the answer into all the business owners' ears and charge, charge a handsome figure for it. <laughs> um, well, if, if you do, I'll join you in that yeah, consultancy. Yeah. <laughs> Um, it's a good question I think the the overriding feeling for me when we decided to go through this process I I remember where I remember the the day where we did it where we talked about it it was in uh, we had a whole day together with the the senior team uh, in one of Dan's uh, friends businesses offices really beautiful boardroom and we sat down and we decided to to make this shift to stop selling hours uh create our tech product and you know it's not an overnight thing we, we had a plan we had the, the kind of the length of time we wanted to achieve it and my overriding feeling at the time was uh terror <laughs> just just terror you know uh, dan mentioned earlier that we were at 1.4 million went down to about 400,000. um of course you know that those things are, are possible for any business um when managed correctly but it's an incredibly incredibly painful difficult process um and so 
I imagine something similar would have to partake with most businesses that were moving from lifestyle to an exit business. It's that it's that real that dip, that slump, the kind of the pain points uh, before you then uh, refocus and, and grow again. And so, I guess any advice would be, um, or well, is it advice or is it a warning? But <laughs> that there's no getting around that painful process and and. You know, I think we managed it quite well. We're all nice people. We're very transparent with everyone. Uh, it's, it was still really hard work, but focusing on knowing that that's going to happen and focusing on the goal and believing in that what you um, have planned and what you want to do is the correct thing for not only you, but actually everyone else as well. You know, with it, hindsight is a wonderful thing. You know, within a year, we were still in touch with all the people that we, we had to let go and they they were so happy you know it's not that they were unhappy in the business at the moment but they went on to find other jobs you know, moved into teaching or uh, moved into game design that kind of stuff and actually it's, it's kind of liberated a lot of people to kind of move on which was actually a nice little side effect a, a little bit kind of sad but also happy at the same time um so i think what the point of what i'm trying to say there is that no matter how uh, painful and hard it seems at the time it's only a it's a small nucleus in life and 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 people learn to adapt and 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 get on with it, um, and so uh, yeah, an expectation of that I think, and a confidence in in where you're going, and but just managing it with um, humility and humanity I think is is the way is the way forward. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, excellent. God. I got um, quite deep. Yeah. Yes, it's a therapy session here. Mm. Um, when when you bring new people into the business. Yeah. Do you look for people who are comfortable with a certain level of risk and uncertainty or do you teach them about it and, and teach them the skill of being able to operate in that kind of environment? What an interesting question. Um, so when we bring new people in, one of the key things we look for is that they will uh, buy into and fit on board with the culture. Not not so much to say that they need to be like there straight away, but actually that they're they're open and willing to work in the way that that we work and, and and willing to learn so i wouldn't say that everyone that we um employ has that has that kind of mindset and, and nor do i think they should really you know it's, it's nice to have the people who are much more risk averse with the dams of the world they, you know it's good to meet it's good to meet in the middle sometimes um so it's, it's not a prerequisite at all however um it's certainly something that people by osmosis learn being here it's the it's the the act of testing learning you know it's, it's all it's all within a process you know we don't just let people kind of just make that go wild and, and make any sort of decision at any time but um it's that ethos of of putting your own ideas forward trusting in your own ideas having a quick chat about it and if it's if it's a goer we'll crack on with it we'll test a, a, an mvp minimum viable product product of it whether that be an actual tech uh kind of product or or just a new process or or a new way of working um and then we'll we'll iterate on it and, and see how that works and it takes different people different lengths of time to get comfortable with that but it's something that people just learn by osmosis by being here it's really part of the culture of, of, of what we what we do and what what do you think the future holds for you what a question can you can you answer that <laughs> can any uh, of us answer that I can any of that yeah, yeah. It's such a good question. um so the next the next few years is is working towards the sale of course um and then um depending on on what happens there um i will be will be looking to to work and to grow grow the tech for for the new owning company um 
I don't know. I, I'd I'd lie if I hadn't said my mind hasn't gone beyond that, <laughs> because why, why wouldn't it? You know, having sold the company, um, in I don't know, Mel. I don't know. Yeah, that's okay. You didn't didn't necessarily yeah. have to have an answer. Sometimes yeah. I meet, um, well, I guess people that you would would say, oh, you know, he or she is an entrepreneur, and they they've already decided what the next thing's going to yeah. be. You know, yeah. or they've got three other irons in the fire already. Um, and then other people are just like, well, I'm doing this now. And when I've done this, I'll be open to the next thing that that comes along. And Yeah, I mean, yeah, I've I've got ideas. I've got thoughts of things I want to want to build and do for sure. But um, yeah, they're uh, very much on the back burner at the moment because, you know, I, I love what I do at the moment. I absolutely yeah. love it. And, uh, and, we're, and we're laser focused on a goal, um, which is something very uh, almost... Um, Almost liberate, I'd say, actually. Yeah, there's, there's liberation in the focus, which I'm, which I'm in. And just one last question, and then I'll let you go. Mm. What's, what's Sheffield like as an environment for growing the sort of business that you're, you're building at Airship? Sheffield is a phenomenal setting for a company like ours. So we, we've been talking a lot about kind of uh, our open and honest uh, ethos our agility our willingness willingness to test and learn and if i were to kind of project that onto a city and the personality of a city i think it would be sheffield you know we're 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 not the prettiest we're not the biggest we're not the we're not the anything but but what we are is incredibly uh, good friendly people we've um we've got some amazing amazing businesses in uh, in the city which create this fantastic culture uh, the, the, all the people here are kind of generally into the outdoors they like doing stuff in the city it's that kind of merging of the two worlds that just creates this really beautiful atmosphere and i think uh, yeah as a, as an embodiment of a of a of a company um and as an embodiment of a city i think sheffield and airship just go <laughs> kind of go hand in hand I, i've never i can't really separate them in my head you know we we do employ people all over the country but they love coming up here and 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 uh I love showing them around when it's here and it's just yeah this this pace it's just stuck on the fringes in park hill um yeah it's just a little bit magic feels like our own little kingdom <laughs> that we're building something fantastic in. and uh yeah it's great that is the most wonderful quote um i don't i think you've just made you know the next advertising campaign for inward investment to sheffield oh, well, there you go. There you go. <laughs> we'll flog it to the city council and see mm. what they think so um, we've already got two business ideas between us now well yeah. yes <laughs> my goodness well they're two natural entrepreneurs having a chat that sort of thing happens <laughs> yeah exactly yeah well um Andrew, that's been just amazing. Thank you so much. Thanks for uh, no lining Dan up as well. Well, um, that's a bit of an abrupt end, uh, but that's down to my rookie editing skills. Uh, I'd like to say a huge thank you to Dan and to Andrew for their time and candor. Plus, hello to Ernest the dog, who was keeping Andrew company and was incredibly well behaved throughout. I hope you enjoyed listening to them as much as I did talking to them. And if there are any other local companies you'd like me to find out more about, do please let me know.